This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Writer Dave Infante spent nearly a decade cranking out articles on a wide range of topics for Thrillist, from the best Snapchat filters to why he only packs dirty clothes when he's traveling. He also wrote a lot about craft beer. For his work on this latter topic, Infante won two James Beard Awards. He's not an inside baseball craft beer writer. He's not a fanboy or a zealot. Instead, he's a self-trained reporter, a teller of poignant and colorful stories. He has a keen eye for an interesting story, and has the ability to get out and cover all the angles. He has an engaging voice, and a casual, pulsating style that draws you in. He's also a funny and entertaining interview. Infante has also written for the New York Times, The Guardian, and Huffington Post, among others. But it was his work for Thrillist that gained him notice in the beer world. One article that he wrote in 2015, titled, There Are Almost No Black People Brewing Craft Beer, Here's Why, netted him one of those beard awards. That particular article has continued to reverberate around the world of craft beer, including recently. It's not usual that brewers remember something that a beer writer produces, but this particular piece stuck with Brooklyn Brewery Brewmaster Garrett Oliver, who gently called out Infante by name in an Instagram post announcing the creation of the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. And in an unplanned twist, you'll get to hear from both Infante and Oliver on back-to-back Beer Edge podcasts. They'll discuss their interactions and opinions on the much-heralded and challenged piece, among a variety of other subjects. But today, we talk with Dave. Next week, we'll have Garrett on to discuss the Jackson Foundation and Infante's 2015 article. Infante somewhat recently moved from New York City to Charleston, South Carolina. He landed a gig as a part-time writer for the local paper, The Post and Courier, where he covered booze in the local restaurant and food scenes. When COVID hit, he got laid off and returned to freelancing. He's now out with a new email newsletter covering drinking culture, being online, and beyond. It's called Fingers. He'll explain why in this episode. And you can subscribe at fingers.substack.com, and I'd recommend it. It's a great read. So far, he's covered serious issues such as racial diversity and inclusion in the beer industry, as well as his open letter application to become White Claw's new chief of marketing. Here's our interview. For folks in my audience who are not familiar with you and your work, can you just give us a little background on on how you got into journalism and eventually then what, you know found yourself in the covering beer? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I so I've been doing this for about a decade, um, and my sort of trajectory to doing journalism about beer um, is through the sort of like early decade wasteland of like doing content about beer, Mm -hmm. um, which are not really the same thing. And anyone who's sort of worked in, in, in the media business, uh, can probably attest to that. And there's, um, sort of this, like, especially at the beginning of the last decade. So I'm talking about like 2010 to, to 2015 or so there was just this like mad rush to produce like as much content as fast as possible and throw it, um, 
throw it onto Facebook, which, you know, is, and still is, you know, was and still is just this massive fire hose of eyeballs, Mm -hmm. um, and onto Twitter and whatever. So I was in that game, um, for Thrillist, uh, which is a website, a food and drink website based in, in New York city. Uh, they, when I joined in 2010, they were just this like email newsletter that like told you where to go in your city. So it was like, Oh, I'm in Boston and, um, there's, you know, this new bar opening up in Cambridge and like, Oh, cool. Thrillist told me about it this morning and I'm going to go there this afternoon or this evening. Uh, that was like what it started out as. It was this like unintelligible, like insanely over the top bro, like voice. Mm-hmm. It was this like very, very like posturing and like, 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 really kind of incoherent in, in hindsight, uh, voice. Um, but you know, it was very popular for its day. Um, and I came on in 2010 to, to be a, uh, an editorial assistant there. And I, I stayed for like eight years, uh, oh, wow. which is, in a, yeah, it made me a dinosaur as far as digital media goes, <laughs> but that's where I first started writing about beer. I started, uh, I eventually worked my way up from, uh, from being like a copy editor and got a chance to start writing, um, you know, like content about beer and wanted to do less content stuff, you know, like the, the 10 best IPAs to drink this summer, that type of thing. Uh, and more, um, you know, reported storytelling about, about the beer space, which I felt like was interesting to me. And I felt like there wasn't a ton of, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was that mainstream audiences were willing to read, obviously a ton of great beer journalism out there, but, um, can can sometimes get a little inside baseball. So that sure. was that was when I first sort of started dipping my toe in it. Um, was was during my time at Thrillist, and that was I don't know, gosh, 20, 2014, 2015, I really started like actually reporting stuff. And what did that digital media landscape look like? Because there were so many different iterations of it that you know were it was you know clickbait at times and lists and listicles and just it went through like all these different things. And should we be on Facebook? Should we not be on Facebook? Should we you know eventually you know moving into everyone has newsletters now? But it seemed like you must have been on a pretty wild ride and kind of a front seat through that sort of turn in in digital media. It was manic. Uh, I remember just being you know and. I don't know, man. You preface this by saying like no one knows what they're talking about in media um, or it's a very rare person that knows what they're talking about in media. So like there's just like this like, you know, it's sort of the blind leading the blind and whoever has like the most confident and loud voice in the room Mm -hmm. and and also the access to capital um, is the one who gets to go you know, like sort of pursue their thesis about what media should be. And like, that was like writ large when I was first coming into the industry. And it took me like a few years to sort of like understand, like, like why everything was so chaotic all the time. But I've come to realize that, that the answer is because no one really knew what was happening and still to a certain extent, no one really does. Um, you know, we thrillist in my time there morphed from a, uh, email newsletter that went out once a day in 20 different markets, um, into this like sort of traffic juggernaut, um, that was all based around a com. Um, you know, we were driving massive amounts of traffic from, uh, mostly from either our email newsletter or, you know, which was consolidated into a single national newsletter and then a bunch of local ones. Um, or, 
via Facebook. And I mean, you know, the question to be on Facebook, to not be on Facebook, there was no question about not mm-hmm. being on Facebook. Like no one was asking the question, should we not be on Facebook at that point? It was more like how far, how much more should we be on Facebook? When Facebook says we want live video, do we start doing that? Yes, yeah. the, is the answer. Do we start, you know, do we do the pivot to video and hire a bunch of video staffers on and try to start making video content? Yes, we do that because Facebook wants to. So it was it was chaotic, man. It was overwhelming. There was, there was very little consistency. Um, um, and I, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, talk very derisively about the pivot to video, quote unquote, that happened in the middle of the past decade. Like it, it cost a lot of pe- a lot of journalists and writers jobs mm-hmm. and, it, and it like ultimately played to Facebook's favor, but no one else's, you know? Yeah. And what was the experience, you know, was Thrillist a place where, you know, clicks were king, where you're, they were showing you numbers all the time at, and, and tracking how, you know, every single piece was doing at any given moment. And was there any pressure to, to write towards that, either through management or editorial staff or just even your own understanding of, of, of how your pieces were doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, certainly we were very traffic-focused at Thrillist um, when I was there. And it was something that like, we all sort of accepted as, like, the way things had to be. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that anyone, at least in like my peer group of like fellow writers and reporters, I don't think anyone was like very pleased about the data driven, um, the data driven model Mm -hmm. uh, for for some obvious reasons. I mean, first of all, like people don't like to feel like they're just like producing widgets. Right. And journalists, least of all, like you want to feel like the stories that you're doing matter and they matter because of the work that you've done in reporting them and the, and the skill that you've hopefully deployed in writing them and all that good stuff. Um, and also like, you know, like it's kind of not a great creative environment to, to write knowing that like things have to quote unquote perform um, in order for, uh, uh, you know, th- this business model to function um, in the way it's set up. Um, so there was a lot of pressure around that. And it was both, uh, you know, it, it usually got filtered through um, editorial. Like we didn't interface directly with like the sales side of the business, thankfully. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were yeah. there were times where we like sort of would, would get into it with them a little bit. But um, it was very overwhelming, man. I mean, like speaking just from my personal experience, like I remember – coming up like i got would get tasked with like you know listicles that i thought were like shitty and meaning yeah. oh can i curse on this or yeah no? go right ahead okay cool yeah uh shitty and meaningless and like and i would it would sort of be like this like deal that you would have to make unspoken right like it wasn't like an actual transaction but it's like all right like i'll do a few of these and then like i'll get to do a story that i actually want to do um and i think to a certain extent like that exists and, and always has to exist. Like mm-hmm. there's always that tension. Um, at Thrillist, it was like, I, I, I found at times it, it was, uh, it was really frustrating and it felt like we were doing, or I was doing more of the, the shit I didn't want to do than I was getting it, getting a chance to take a shot at like some of the stuff I, I did want to do. Um, and that's like, I don't know, man, that's hard. Like, yeah. I, not that not that you know what is the i think it's the seinfeld term like the delicate genius you know like <laughs> everyone wants to think that they're like the hot shot who like you know should be able to subsist on skill alone and like i've since grown to understand like how arrogant that position was and i certainly was arrogant at that time but like i still think that like in terms of like the spectrum i was a lot further towards like the listicle clickbait like ephemera content than i was towards 
um, like reporting and like, you know, narrative journalism that I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. And when did you get to sort of transition into more of the narrative based writing? Because obviously, you know, since, you know, you're starting at Thrillist, you've gone on to you know, do reasonably well for yourself in, in things such as the James Beard Awards. And, you know, we'll talk about some of those articles. But, you know, how, you know, you know at that time and, and since, you know, how is the tension been between, you know, those two sort of, you know, poles of, you know, just trying to provide that very basic, you know, list-based content and trying to do, you know, the deeper dives? Did you find that the audience was there for the deeper dives? And do you think it still is? I mean, I think like, so my trajectory at Thrillist, the turning point for me was like, we launched this like, this like doomed, uh, like men's lifestyle blog that was sort of like an offshoot of Thrillist. And I like helped like head that up. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it was, it it failed for a variety of reasons that I would like to think I had no part of, but it's uh, thankfully been scrubbed from the internet. I think it was called the Crosby press. Um, You may be able to still turn it up (laughs) in like the Wayback machine or something, but whatever. So I was coming off that. It was a part of like the thrillist sort of like group. Um, And like, luckily I, you know, had been with the company for a while and they wanted, um, they wanted to make a place for me on the, on the actual like thrillist.com, like writing team on the, on the editorial team. Um, so I joined, uh, you know, that team more direct, you know, like more officially and started producing this like listicle content, whatever, um, around like, I guess it would have been like 2014 or 20, like early 2015. Um, I actually freelanced this story for, uh, for Mashable, um, back when man, Mashable, I don't yeah. even know if it still exists, but at, at the time it was still pretty big. And, um, they just hired, uh, Jim Roberts, who was like a former New York times dude. And like he, they, they were making like their big play to be like, we're going to be, you know, actually covering, um, you know, tech and culture, like as, as a reporting outlet. Um, so I freelanced this piece with them about, um, the, uh, like what I coined as like the yucky class, the young urban creative class, sort of a play on on yuppies uh, from the eighties. And um, that went like, that was like a viral hit. Um, Like I don't say that to, to be immodest. It just like, it went everywhere. It was like, just sort of, it resonated in a way that I didn't even really expect. Um, It was sort of like calling the death, the time of death on like hipsterism and like, you know, looking at this sort of like, uh, uh, hyper curated, like consumptive, like caricature that came after hipsters. Right. And like, I don't know, I read it the other day, actually, I, I haven't looked at it in a while and it, like, it mostly holds up. Mm-hmm. Like it was, and it was lightly reported. I think I like found some like studies and shit to like back it up. Um, but it was a reported essay, you know, like it was, it was, I was making the case. So that kind of went everywhere. Um, and because, either because of that or maybe like maybe it was a coincidence i don't know i I, i'm i'm not so sure that thrillist was very pleased that i published that article uh for like a another site i think Mm -hmm. they probably would have preferred to have it on their own um but maybe because of that i was able to sort of like make the case for myself like give me a little bit more runway here and i can do this type of shit i can do this type of shit here right Mm -hmm. like i can uh, you know um so then i finally sort of like I, I like 
tooth and nail clawed my way out of like the content mine, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember doing like, like basically like, like faux journalism, um, for thrillist, like to sort of like build some runway for myself where like I was doing like, these are like the, the stories, the backstories of like America's like classic beers that like you don't see anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I would do like the, like Rheingold and, you know, right. uh, Ballantine and Rainier and whatever, like stuff that, you know, later got bought up by Strohs and then Pabst and then mm-hmm. I don't even know who owns the, these brands right. these days, but, but like they you know, a lot of them were of novel interest to our audience, uh, that didn't have deep beer knowledge or really much beer, beer knowledge at all, but like cool vintage cans, you know, like, and there's actually some interesting stuff going on that harkens back to, uh, an era, uh, when like cities of, of any decent size had their own breweries, which was like, you know, this like mystical time before the big three, uh, that, that a lot of our audience didn't know about. And that frankly, I didn't know about a ton before I started researching and, and writing it. So there was like, there was like a lot of like, I would do like a lot of like like what I would call like journalism light L I T E you know <laughs> yeah. to, to keep up the beer theme. Sure. Um, that was like you know it was it was research. Um, the uh, it was not reporting um, so much. Although I did do one on the Swedish bikini team that I remember like I I, yeah. I like tracked down like this the dude at the ad agency who like came up with the Swedish bikini team concept for Old Milwaukee I think it was. Um, and you know like got his side of the story because that was like you know that was like an original viral hit back in 91 mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it became like 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 tipper gore was on like late night tv being like this is like what's wrong with america type of thing like so it was like it, it was a it was an early like sort of echo of the culture war um that we went through a lot during like you know we saw play out a lot during the second half of the decade this past decade where you know uh, craft beer brands with like like hot blonde ale or whatever mm-hmm. uh like very obviously sexist and misogynistic like beer labels uh uh, uh like sort of had their cultural reckoning um so I, I i did some reporting there and then i i think my first like real big reported piece for thrillist was they had just hired this guy um joe kahane uh who is a, a former editor from esquire and we hired him on thrills had hired him on to be a features and writer actually little little known he was actually the first editor of beer advocate magazine that's right that's right he knows uh he knows those guys yep. i yep. i uh, he came from yeah. boston that's right yeah i know he came from boston because he never shuts up about it but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah so joe joe had come on and, you know, this was a great opportunity for me and one that, frankly, at the time, I didn't quite understand. Um, but Joe was like a real pros pro in a way that like um, Thrillist had not really hired or invested in in the past. Um, you know, and this was this was the beginning of two years or so where the the title got somewhat serious about publishing legitimate journalism. Um, and so my first outing with Joe was this this piece. Um investigating you know is there a craft beer bubble um which is you know man talking about these topics now it's just like man how young we were yeah how like how like how rudimentary these conversations were and how much more complex have they gotten since yeah. but um but yeah was there a craft beer buzzle, bubble and i talked to all the usual suspects and, and my conclusion at the time was that it was, no there's no bubble but this is the beginning of uh, a period of consolidation. Like we are, got, like we're watching a war happen. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in slow motion, not so much between the, the big corporate players, but more between um, the big regional uh, uh, craft players. Um, and so that did all right with our audience. And we saw some, you know, pop off of that, so to speak, because again, we're very focused on traffic. Um, and, um, and then I guess maybe the next big thing that I wrote, at least the next big thing that I wrote about beer um, was this piece that I did about uh, the absence or the lack of uh, craft brewers in uh, or black craft brewers in uh, in the American beer industry, mm-hmm. and and that's the one that sort of went wide for us. Right. Um, and that's that's when it sort of was like, all right, like maybe maybe I should like I could keep doing this stuff and like hit traffic goals, uh, which was always uh, always the conversation. With that particular piece, uh, it obviously you know resonated quite you know strongly through the industry through the internet. Uh, the beer industry spent a time, a lot of time looking at it, as did, you know, and you eventually went on to win a James Beard Award for it. What was, how did that story come to be? What were, you know, what were you looking at in the industry and thinking, this is a story I want to write, or what interested you about the topic? I mean, so, I don't know, like, as a self-taught journalist, like, I never went to J school. I never really had the benefit of a mentor uh, uh, who had, who had done you know, like who had come up through the newspaper system, for mm-hmm. example, um, Joe had was the first time I'd really ever dealt with someone who was a pro and not just self-taught. Um, I, but like my, my understanding of like what journalists were supposed to do then, um, is mostly what I believe now, which is like, you're supposed to look for stories that like people haven't necessarily told and about people who don't necessarily uh, uh, get attention, mm-hmm. um, and have like, a, you know, like that are, are getting fucked by the status quo or are getting sort of left out of these mainstream conversations. Um, so with that lens, uh, I, and I still believe that to, to a certain extent, I mean, there's, there's probably more layers on top of that now mm-hmm. that I've been doing it for longer. And certainly my experience in the, the local newspaper, uh, environment has, has colored that experience as well. But, um, you know, so I started like, all right, well, like what, what's missing from the craft beer space, uh, that I could potentially, you know, like add. And I, I like, I don't know, like reverse engineer makes it sound a lot more clinical than it was. Like, it's not like I like came up with this thing in a test tube, but like mm-hmm. a question that I had often asked myself was like, man, like it, you know, this industry just anecdotally appears to be just all white dudes. Right. Like, is the, is that the case? Um, so I actually, I, resisted writing this story for a while um because uh i was worried that it like wasn't really my story to tell yeah um and we tried to i i I had sort of like offered it up as like hey someone should do something on this and then for one reason or another and I, i wasn't really part of the conversations but like for one reason or another no one ever really did um and so i like checked back in on it and was like hey like what's going on with this? And Joe was like, well, why don't you, why don't you write it? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Like, is this appropriate? And you know, Joe's white, I'm white, like two white guys in a room talking about whether it's appropriate. Like you can make calls after the fact and people did, and I'm sure people still will about whether we came to the right conclusion, Mm -hmm. uh, that it was okay for me to write it. But I can say, now and hold my head high and say at the very least like i tried to report it really really carefully and in good faith and i did the best i could with it and um 
and it came out all right for by 2015 standards. I mean, you look at it now and it's like, again, very, very quaint um, in its sort of uh, optimism and, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, like lack of dimension. It's a pretty single dimension piece, which is fine. I mean, that's where I was at the time as a, as a writer. Um, But, but yeah, that's how it came together. And, and I think like, honestly, like I, we were not shocked by the performance. It performed well, from a traffic standpoint, because it was, uh, it was, you know, very well compared to the, the content that thrills normally produced at the time, uh, much more incendiary because yeah. it was directly, it was like directly addressing racial inequity, which is just not something the brand did, mm-hmm. um, at that time. Um, you know, we were very quote unquote, uh, uh, advertiser friendly or brand safe or whatever. Um, and just really steered very clear of those topics in a way that was at times, I think, um, pretty frustrating to the, to the newsroom. Um, but it performed well. Um, I was very surprised it got nominated for James Beard. And then, um, even more surprised when it, when it won the James Beard award, just cause I didn't, I had no, I mean, I still have very little insight into how those awards were right. um, and what the judgments, you know, how those judgments are made. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I was just sort of shocked that, uh, frankly, like we could get a look at a website like Thrillist, which is, um, you know, was at the time. And I think maybe like has become less so since, but like was not really looked at as a legitimate uh, outlet for journalism. Right. Right. Um, so that was, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a bit of a surprise all around. And the article, you know, while it obviously received a great deal of praise, both, you know, from, you know, the industry and from readers and also obviously with the award, you know, it did come in for some criticism for some of the reasons you're talking about, but for one of the, you know, the more notable, you know, reasons was obviously Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster, longtime brewmaster at Brooklyn brewery in New York, uh, you know, he, you had, you know, gone to speak, you know, tried to speak with him about, you know, the topic. And I get in, can you talk to us a little bit about what his response was at the time? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I, I should say that, like, I don't really know any, like, of these folks that, like, I talked to for my, a lot of my stories. Like, sure. I have, I have phone relationships with most of my sources. I've not been lucky enough to meet many of them in person, especially the stuff I do at the national level. Mm-hmm. And Garrett is no exception. Like, I'm, I'm aware of who Garrett is, and I was at the time aware of who he was, um, just because we're, you know, I was covering the space, and and he was, and still is, a very high profile person in it. But I didn't really have any rapport with him, and that's sort of the. I don't know, like that's one of the knocks of doing this style of journalism and doing journalism with the, like this resource and with these resources limited as they are, uh, is you like kind of have to just like show up in people's inboxes and be like, Hey, you like want to talk to me about some right, shit? Right. Like, um, you know, as you know, like sometimes that works. Like yeah. there are plenty of people who like love talking about the work that they do. And like you get a professor on the phone or you get a brand rep on the phone, like they'll talk your ear off. Um, but uh, I think in hindsight, I don't have, I still have the emails because I obviously don't have access to my Thrillist email account anymore. But like in hindsight, like I'm sure I came off as kind of uh, 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 impudent or whatever the word is, uh, uh, churlish. I don't know. Mm-hmm. When I just like I emailed Garrett 
oh, I think I hit a, I talked to a PR f- person first, but they put me in touch with Garrett and I was like, Hey man, like, why don't you think there are like many black people brewing? Like, how did you get to the position that you you're in? You know, like I have to imagine that came off as a little half cocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> and so I got, uh, I got a polite response, uh, to, to his credit. He was very polite. Um, but it was, you know, it was, I think fairly cold, um, and deservedly. So it was like, you know, like this, this is a question that's like way bigger than fear. Uh, uh, you know, like you're talking about like the problems that exist, like just sort of in America generally. Um, you know, I hear some books that I think you should read or something. And I, like, I didn't, I, I maybe it felt like a little bit of a brush off at the time. In hindsight, I, I, you know, I've since sort of like understood a little bit more like why he would respond like that. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, I, I deserved it. Um, but yeah, I didn't get much from him. Uh, I got, I got some, like he, he recommended that I read, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's book, which mm-hmm. I did. Um, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates was super, like really like hitting his stride at that moment right. in time was writing, like he had just written the case for reparations and, and, uh, you know, was uh, with that, that massive 1600 word, uh, article in the Atlantic, um, and was, you know, it was still on Twitter. Um, yeah, so I didn't get much from Garrett. Um, and so I sort of wrote the story mostly around him. Um, mm-hmm. and he, he was, he was barely a subject. His name appeared in, it and I, I, uh, included sort of that feedback from him, but for the most part, I reported it, uh, with like folks um, who I either like came across in research or just like knew through like friends of friends mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, I think I talked to one guy uh, who runs this uh, brewery in, in Ohio, black frog brewery, which has since become like a, a, a real brewery, mm-hmm. which is cool. Um, and he was running a Kickstarter uh, to start the brewery and, and it came up short. Um, and and, you know, I think in the piece I mentioned that one being like, like, you know, yet another example of like ways that like this is, is a systemic issue right, because right. there's less access to capital, not only amongst the actual brewery owners, but also amongst the community that would theoretically support them. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I just sort of like I I was scraping around and looking for uh, folks to talk to. And um, I. It, it came together again well enough. I think there are flaws with the piece. Like there's any flaws in, you know, like there's very rarely a totally airtight piece, or mm-hmm. at least I've, I very rarely write them. <laughs> I guess is a better way to say it. Um, but and and I I have to own the criticism of the story that's come out since, and and I think that that's fair. And I think a lot of people make the criticisms that they do in good faith. Um, certainly some in bad faith, but what can you do? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it came together, I think, relatively well for the moment in time that it was written, I guess, is like the the most like uh, the most validation I want to give the story. Like, I don't think I like at the time where beer journalism was or and like where I was writing that piece, you know, for a mainstream outlet that had not really done much, if any, um, serious writing about like racial inequity in America. Um I think it was a, a relatively like, it, it, if not the best that it could have been for who I was and what the publication was at the time. Like it was, it it, it was it was good and 
it was as good as we could get it, I guess yeah. is the best way to say. It. I'm stum- I'm fumbling over my words here because like I don't want to make it sound like I'm like trying to like unduly defend the piece. I also don't want to unduly tear it down. Like I, right. I worked I worked hard on it. I think that there are things that are good about it and I think it furthered some conversations and I think that it probably could have been uh better in the hands of a more skilled journalist. And I think the you know, the interaction apparently stayed with Garrett because you know he would from time to time over the you know in the intervening five years or so refer to it and usually you know I, I heard at least one you know he was speaking at I think Fresh Fest a couple of years ago and referenced you know well this you know this writer from the Thrillist reached out to me and it would just it would just come up like that but you know there's a bit of a coda here where with his announcement recently of the for- foundation. Uh, the formation of the Michael Jackson Foundation, uh, which is going to give uh, you know people of color scholarships to get expert, you know, get some technical training in in the brewing and distilling industries. Uh, he did make mention of you. How did you know? What was your first thought on seeing that? And um, you know, because any I can tell you as you know, somebody on one side of this, anytime you see your name mentioned in something, it's almost never good. And so your, your, <laughs> right. your heart, your heart drops at least initially. So what was, you know, what was your, and you had some, some interaction with him, you know, since on, on social media. Yeah. So I personally did not realize that Garrett even remembered who I was. Right. And like, honestly, even you saying that he brought it up at Fresh Fest, like I didn't even know that he'd ever mentioned it before. Like, but obviously he has. Um, so What's funny is that I actually, after writing the piece, I met Gary and I, I'm not sure that he put two and two together that I was the same person um, because like we did like a Facebook live together once, oh, wow. um, okay. which by the way, speaking of like, you know, <laughs> like things that publications did because yeah. Facebook told them to, uh, I, I like would host this, like we would like taste people's, you know, breweries, craft beers, mm-hmm. and, like talk about, you know, what they were up to type of thing. It's very like low stakes bullshit basically to fill airtime but we got some great you know folks to talk to us and it was fun for what it was i met garrett and he never mentioned it and maybe you know it's his prerogative or maybe he just totally forgot or didn't connect you know didn't put two and two together but it's a shock it was a shock to me um in july or whenever this went up the social media post i think it was on instagram that he he made uh in july 2020 let's say that was like um that I was that he name checked me in, right. and he name checked the story in, um, and I mean when I first saw that, like I was sort of freaked out just because, like, I mean Garrett is a big, you know, a big, uh, a big figure in our industry, and like I'm not really, or I'm first of all when I say our industry, right. I, I mean the one that I cover. Yes, which is, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I know, and like I try to be more like careful delineating that because i always tell people like i'm not in the beer industry i don't right. make beer i don't you know like i i hope that nice people who i cover have success in the space but like doesn't doesn't matter to me type of thing no it's important anyway. it's an important point to make it's one that you know i i stumble through frequently as people say you're in the community you're part of it you're the industry no i understand your point yeah yeah so so you know but garrett is a very prominent uh, figure in the in the beer space um he's also for what it's worth he's a more accomplished author than i am i mean he's <laughs> he's he's written some very important uh uh you know beer journalism of his own over the years so um when i when i saw that he had like name checked me uh i don't know i guess i was like oh man like i'm i felt like i was kind of gonna get like i i felt like i, I don't know like i 
like I was going to get dragged maybe, or yeah. like I was going to, I was going to be sort of like, like, this is like the final call out here. Like there was criticism about the piece, but it was criticism from, uh, uh, you know, people on Twitter. Um, and I answered that criticism at the time and have tried to own it. Um, but you know, this is a very hot moment in, um, in our national discourse with regards to, you know, like excessive policing and, and the killing of George Floyd, which has set off just sort of this like reckoning, um, or at least partial reckoning about America's like sort of like unaddressed, um, and still like fairly full throated, uh, tacit embrace of, you know, the, the values of white supremacy on Mm -hmm. which this country is built. Uh, we'd just seen like sort of like the 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 bon appetit shit go down like a month prior right, right um so there's like all these like all this like sort of context that i was aware of that was like um made it a very tense moment for in my perspective for folks in food media um and as someone who um you know is a, I don't know, man, I'm just like a nervous person generally. And I mm-hmm. have a lot of anxiety generally. Like, I can't lie. Like I was, I was pretty anxious. It made me kind of like, I don't know, freaked out is a little heavy, but like, yeah. it was like, Oh man, like what am I going to have to like, I don't know what I'm going to have to do here. Like, do I need to like make my account private? Like, am I supposed to like all, all preemptively. And like, it should be noted that like, Eric's like name check of me was like very, very mild. Right. Right. Like, and so I think a lot, a lot of, if not all of what I'm describing was a, like an overreaction sort of like, like bread of like the moment rather than like the actual content mm-hmm. of his comment. Um, and it, it has to be acknowledged that like, as far as like harassment on the internet goes, like your, your, your pal Dave faces very <laughs> little of it compared right, yeah. to, uh, compared to women and compared to, right, uh, right. to trans folks and, and, and communities of color. So I'm I'm aware of all that. I can't I can't lie and say I was also totally cool with it because I wasn't. I was yeah. I was nervous and like sort of just like oh fuck like w- what am I in for here? So I responded to the post. I felt like I you know I didn't want to make it about me because it was a post about like a pretty cool like uh, um, uh, uh, foundation that mm-hmm. he was creating and you know last thing anyone needs is like more white dudes like making it about themselves in the beer space um but since i had been called out by name i thought it was appropriate to at least respond and acknowledge um and i I said something along the lines of like like you know thanks for you know giving me the benefit of the doubt at the time and thanks for giving me the benefit of the doubt here you know this sounds like a great initiative good luck with it type of thing um and I didn't, and then I just like turned off Instagram for the day and yeah. it was just like, I need to not focus on this. Like, you know, let the chips fall where they may type of thing. Um, and Garrett very graciously responded to me like a day later and was, you know, very, uh, you know, something along the lines of like, we're all sort of like learning as we go. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks for starting the conversation. Something like that. Right. Um, which I thought was like pretty decent of yeah. him. I, again, I don't know this person at all. I only know him through through reporting and, and, and up this like bizarre link that we have because of this story. Uh, but I thought it was pretty kind of him to give me the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, you know, I, I wish him, I do wish him the best of luck with the foundation. I think it's a very valid goal that it has. And, um, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a strange thing to be indirectly a part of. Um, 
in this way. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy if, if it's true that I, in his mind, like helped get the conversation going, then I'm happy to have played that part. After your time at the Thrillist, what was your, what was your next move? And we're eventually getting to how you've ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, uh, so I left Thrillist in, uh, also I don't care at all. There's no definite article before Thrillist, but people sometimes put one there, the Thrillist, which cracks me up to no end for it, it was like an internal joke amongst like writers like ah yes the thrillist like it's just like something that we all like sort of said on the slack channel and sometimes it'd be, it'd be people, like the Newsweek, the time yeah it, exactly exactly just like a goofy like clunkier way to say yeah. it um yeah let's so i i did video production work for them for like a year and a half um and i left in march 2018 um April 2018 or whatever. Um, and we were actually in the middle of uh, bargaining for a union contract at the time. And I was on the bargaining committee. Um, and I just, it was time for me to go. I, I really wasn't, I felt like I was sort of like creatively frustrated and just like wasn't really enjoying it anymore. I'd also, like I said, been there for almost eight years. So it was, it, it was for many reasons time to go. Um, and, uh, so I left, I went freelance, um, which basically just means, you know, like I'm going to start trying to pitch as much as I can and, and mm -hmm. make ends meet type of thing. Um, I wrote, I, I think I had a pretty good run of like, as far as freelance stuff goes, like I was, I was pretty picky about what I took because like, I was like, well, I left Thrillist to like try to like get some bigger bylines um, and like you know, legitimize myself a little bit more as a journalist, so to speak. Um, I think I, like, I had this piece in um, Splinter, which was like the offshoot of like the former Gawker, mm -hmm. um, which now itself has gone by the wayside. Splinter right. has. Um, but I had a piece in Splinter about like, w like labor conditions and craft brewing and sort of how, you know, the progressive uh, bona fides or however you say it, um, of like the craft brewing industry don't really line up with the um, like labor uh, uh, exploitation or at least like the labor conditions that it it asks of um, its workers. Um, I had I had that piece, and then that piece led to um, because of that story, I got I got the tip off from the the guys and I think maybe a few women who were working at the. Anchor Brewing uh, mm -hmm. uh, plant in in San Francisco in Portrero Hill, who at, it turned out had read my my piece in Splinter and uh, had decided, or at least like it had been a deciding factor for some of them that like they needed to unionize right. there. So I got the they called me up and were like, hey, we're gonna go live with this. Like, do you want to try to like, would you like to break this story? And so I mean, that's a that was a great piece. So I. I picked that up and did that for splinter i did a follow-up about the union busting that that uh anchor engaged in i did that piece for huffpost um i wrote i had a piece in uh the new york times was sort of the zenith of of this like little freelance tear that i was on um and which was about uh uh um the diversity in the in the craft beer space and sort of the economic imperative of um 
you know, like, like broadening the customer base. Um, so, you know, I, I was freelancing, I was working on book proposal, uh, that never really went anywhere. Um, and then in August, 2018, um, my, uh, girlfriend, uh, got a job in Charleston. Um, and I was just working from a laptop. Um, so I didn't really have any reason to be in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we moved down here, uh, and we've been here, I guess, almost exactly two years at this point. And when you were moved down there, was there any, you know, thought of getting a more full-time gig or part-time gig or how did the post and courier come into the picture? Yeah. I mean, at first, no. I mean, I was freelancing when I was, I was, you know, some of the stories I mentioned just a moment ago, I, I was freelancing from down here. So I was like hustling and doing the work, uh, that I had been doing in New York. I was just doing it down here. And I also like was consulting, um, with, uh, my dad had this, like, um, this college sports business, like newsletter that he published for a while. So I was like helping him with that. So like, I, I was like making ends meet just as like a, like a, you know, a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for, I mean, I guess about a year. Um, yeah, it would have been. And then in, uh, so in like at the top of 2019, um, my friend who works at the post and Courier and has worked there for six years or so, um, her name is Hannah Raskin. She works on the food desk. Um, she's the food editor and the chief critic. Um, she had like sort of, she had tweeted about like they had a, they had a position opening on the, on the food desk. They were going to hire a, a reporter. Um, so I, I went and spoke to them, um, about that and they, it was, you know, it was a good, it seemed like it might be a fit, but we were way off on, on money. Yeah. Um, which like, frankly, like probably partly my fault. Like, I think, I, I don't know what my expectation was, but like, you know, like I was not familiar with like just how low, um, like the, like just the newspaper pay scale right. is generally. And again, like this is a function of not being like an experienced, like journalist who came up through those ranks. Like I, I'm not saying that like, I don't know, like maybe I should have known that, but like, I didn't like, this was the first time I'd ever been in a newspaper office. Like, you know, that's just not, that wasn't my background, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't come together on money. And like, I just wasn't going to be able to make it work like from an affordable, like being able to afford like what I I needed to, to live down here. So I was like, we couldn't make it work. So they, they had hired someone else and I don't think it worked out with that person. So then they called me again at the beginning of the summer and, um, and asked uh, to see if I'd be willing to, to like figure out like a part-time gig instead, um, you know, with, with something that was a little bit more aligned with what I was hoping for um, hourly, but you know, was obviously limited in terms of the amount of hours. Uh, so, so it makes sense for them. Um, so we worked through that, and then I started there right at the end of July last year. So I, I was there for from like July from August 1, 2019, let's say, until like August 4 or 5, uh, 2020. So I made it uh, almost exactly a year. Yeah. We're working a local beat. So I guess I can say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that was not the plan. I, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to do it. But no, I did not. I didn't move down here with the hope that like I was going to get that job. It sort of just came together. Um, 
and and was you know it's something I did for a year, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, you know, what was your experience covering you know the local scene in Charleston, and and sort of what are you, what is your view of it? Because obviously coming from coming from New York and Brooklyn in particular, it's a it's a different lifestyle, different scene. Yeah, I mean, I think like it was very jarring to me to work at a newspaper. Generally, um, I I have so much admiration for what for what like newspaper reporters do, like the amount of like reporting that they do and the speed with which they do it uh frankly kind of dizzying to me um and i you know it's really it's pretty impressive shit and hannah uh who turned out you know who wound up being my editor for the time that i was there she's a total beast like it was just like you know writing like a a a three-source story like in you know 40 minutes or whatever just like it's just like it it was not the pace at which I was like comfortable or frankly capable working. Um, and so I think like, you know, I, I, that was one major change that had less to do with the geography and more Mm -hmm. to do with the, the, the style of publication. Um, in terms of covering local beat, man, like the, the weirdest thing was like, just realizing like that, like you could, I mean, this is kind of a cool thing. Like, you get to know all your sources for yeah. better and worse. So like, you know, like with the type of journalism that I was doing, um, you know, sort of like more features oriented journalism when I was freelancing and when I was at Thrillist, um, I would identify the sources that like made the most sense to talk to. And then I would reach out and be like, Hey, like this is the story I'm working on. Like, can we schedule some time to talk? I would really love to hear your perspective, blah, blah, blah. Um, sort of more protracted and like a little bit more of a dance um with like reporting on like a beat locally like it's like well you know everyone you need to talk to for this story like some restaurant owner did something bad and like you have to call them and then you have to call the person who's complaining about it like (laughs) boom that's your story right like and you know you you know the person who's complaining about it probably posted on Facebook about it. So you know who you have to talk to there. Yeah. And then you got to call the, the restaurant or the bar and give them a chance to, to respond. And then maybe you got to call some state agencies if it's a, you know, a question about, um, about uh, licensing or something. Yeah. But guess what? You know, the, you know, the point of contact at like every state <laughs> agency, cause you talk to them by virtue of your job. So that was like a big, I, you know, and like, this is more like maybe journalism tradecraft than you care to, than you care to hear about here and i'm sure you know yourself because you've done this dance before but like that was something that like i found if not like attractive about the job i certainly found it interesting about the job is how like i don't know like part of what makes me so impressed by newspaper people is like they just like spar with the same flax like again and again and and again Oh, and it's like so weird. It's like, aren't you, aren't both of you tired of doing this yeah. now? <laughs> like, like this, this, it's just so weird, right? It's just like, a bad, just re- like, it's just a bad relationship of one you can't kick because you're totally, kinda, you're a yeah. little bit stuck with each other. You're totally stuck with each other. And like you, you know, like everyone's trying to get one over on each other. And like, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but like every little story feels like a sprint because you're on deadline to do it. And it's like, I, I it, it was I was very impressed and like intrigued by the dynamic and I knew I wasn't very good at it. Um, <laughs> you know, like I just like, I could do it for, to a certain extent, but like it did, it did not agree with me. Like I just, I wasn't, I wasn't as good at doing that as I am at doing other things. <laughs> um, 
but it was a cool experience. And then, and then I got laid off and it's, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. There was like this outpouring of like, like, Oh my God, local journalism's dying. I was like, look, man, like maybe so, but like, don't let me be like the person who convinces you of that. Like my situation was like, probably like if there was anyone who should have been laid off in that newsroom, it was probably me. Like I was paid, you know, relatively well. And I mean, compared to the compared to the newsroom right. uh not compared to any other pay scale because of <laughs> the aforementioned you yep. know like poverty of newspapers generally um but you know and like i i was part-time and whatever so i i like you know they're doing a gofundme for the other you know there i think there were three or four of us who got laid off and they're doing a GoFundMe to be distributed to the journalists uh, who got laid off. And I have been, I tweeted about it to try to help raise some money, but like, I'm not going to take anything from that yeah. fund. I, I like, I, I, I was part-time there. So I'm set up in a way that like, I was, I was making money, like not through the paper and like my cash flow is affected obviously, but it's not, I am not out on my ass right. in a way that I think like, you know, other other local journalists either here or just generally across the country like when you get laid off from a local newspaper it tends to be a lot more dire because often they're the only employer in town Mm -hmm. right like they're the only they're the only one like hiring journalists (laughs) like uh so i'm not in that situation at least and i'm very lucky uh in that regard so following the example of your father apparently you've decided to get into the (laughs) newsletter game uh which uh is not at all popular these days nobody nobody's nobody's rocking newsletters no, I'm on the cutting edge, man. I think I'm the first, uh, I believe I'm the first newsletter. Uh, <laughs> so tell, uh, tell me about the new project. Yeah, man. So Fingers is uh, is it's, is what it's called. It's named after my favorite drinking game, um, which I don't know if you've ever played it before, but you put your finger on a cup and then you, you know, you count down and pull your finger off or leave it on. It's great fun. If we ever go back to pre-pandemic like times and you can actually like touch other stuff and oh, be gosh. within six yeah. feet of people, then maybe we'll play it someday. Yeah. But Um, I was just looking for like a a name that was like distinctive and like amused me Mm -hmm. um, and was like vaguely drinking related. Um, But the the newsletter's focus is broadly uh, uh, about drinking culture and being online. And so the the idea sort of came to me um, throughout the spring. I was reporting on a a piece for Mel magazine. which is out of LA mm-hmm. um, about the sort of like curious overlap between um, between like paramilitary, like, like gun rights, like activists um, who like believed in the Boogaloo, um, which has since become sort of a household name of sorts um, and uh, white claw hard seltzer. So there, yeah. so these dudes, <laughs> Uh, who had like you know multiple owned multiple assault rifles and would post on Reddit forums about you know how much they looked forward to uh, to, to killing the Alphabet Boys, um, which mm-hmm. is slang for the for the, for the federal uh, yep. agents in the FBI or the ATF or whatever. Um, they would also post these photos of of uh, of like their like kits, their their guns with like cans of their favorite types of hard seltzer. So it was like it'd become this like cultural totem for them. Um, obviously, very strange, um, just kind of jarring to see that juxtaposition. Um, and I was pretty fascinated by. It. I actually came upon it from uh, for for the beer industry heads listening to this, they'll recognize the the name. I came upon it from worst beer blog. Um, he he had been posting 
some videos of, of guys like shooting hard seltzer cans. Um, and I thought that was fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I started looking into it and, uh, and, and then, you know, I, I, I found this sort of like community. It wasn't just one offs. It was like, these guys were doing the shit as like sort of a thing. Um, so that was like, I don't know. I loved that story for, like it was just like it was weird yeah it was the sort of weird that i like covering um the stakes actually turned to be fair turned out to be fairly high for that piece because uh you know when i was covering it the boogaloo movement was still fairly esoteric to Mm -hmm. anyone outside of like national security and like right-wing uh extremism circles um but shortly thereafter uh with sort of like the anti-mask protests and the uh you know, uh, uh, the demonstrations on the state house steps and whatever the, these dudes in the boogaloo, uh, or in the, in the, excuse me, in the Hawaiian shirts that, you know, were looking forward to the second coming of the civil war, which they call the boogaloo. I started showing up in mainstream, uh, uh, news media. They were getting covered. They were getting attention. And so like, I was like, wait, holy shit. Like, I know these dudes. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been reporting on these dudes. Like, these are the same dudes that like the white, the white yeah. So that was just like a very fun, fun, I mean, fun, uh, <laughs> re- relatively speaking. Right. It's very fucking, fucking gloomy, but everything is gloomy these days. So we have to find fun where we can. It amused me and was interesting to me, and the stakes felt high, and it felt like important reporting to like sort of capture this cultural moment. And that was like the this, like, this perfect intersection of like, you know, drinking culture sort of bleeding over from the internet into real life. And, um, I love doing stories like that. I've done, you know, a lot of that type of work and I want to do more. And honestly, it's not super easy to pitch that type of thing because Mm -hmm. it's for so many editors, it's sort of know it when you see it. Um, and like after the fact, Oh yeah. White claw paramilitary, like boogaloo dudes. Like, yes, give me 3000 words on that. But, but before you, before you get that story together, uh, you know, Alana Levinson, who's the editor over at Mel Magazine, to her credit, like immediately was like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Write me that story. Yeah. Um, but those are hard stories to pitch. And so I launched Fingers um, partly because I just am a follower and everyone else has a newsletter. So I figured I better. <laughs> but also because I wanted a chance to be able to do stories like that, that like, you know, maybe didn't necessarily have an audience at any one publication, but had an audience uh, th- that I might be able to build an audience around. And it's been fun. I've been doing it for, uh, I don't know, since like mid-May. Um, we've got, you know, I try to be pretty transparent about like, I think I have just about, just under 800 subscribers right now. No one's paying me or anything. It's still free. I'm hoping maybe someday to to turn it paid. But right now it's just a creative outlet. I'm doing a little bit of reporting. Um, and then I'm fucking around a ton. Um, and that's been really fun for me. And that's trying to, I'm trying to treat it that way as just more of a creative outlet rather than like, and, and this speaks to sort of my, my like career trajectory coming up through Thrillist and being obsessed with metrics to my detriment, you know, like I've been trying to like decouple, like whether something is good mm-hmm. from whether it like quote unquote performs right. well. Uh, and let me tell you something that has, that effort has not been going very well, but I'm, try- <laughs> but I'm trying. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So that's, that's my hope is that like, I can keep on sort of 
you know, like blogging, which is most is effectively what it is. It's blog posts delivered via email. Um, and like do shit that interests me about the beer space and about drinking more generally. Like I wrote about the Topo Chico, mm-hmm. uh, hard, hard seltzer and, and sort of like about how, uh, this was an inevitable conclusion when you sell to the biggest CPG firm in the world or one of, um, you know, like you're not avoiding like that from like, that's going to happen. Right. Topo, Topo Chico, hard seltzer, was gonna happen as soon as white claw happened it was just a matter in my opinion just a matter of time and like who knows man maybe i'm wrong but like the beauty of blogging is you can sort of make these proclamations and be you know like sort of riffing between somewhere between like reporting and and uh an opinion and and have fun with it and so i don't know i've been trying to i have some other stuff i actually have a um i've been doing some interviews too so I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little bit like zini, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like kind of just like whatever I like want to do with it, which I can do just cause no one pays me to do it. And I do it in my spare time. And my fiance, uh, is kind enough to let me do it. <laughs> yeah. It, it just sort of reminds me of like a, like a boozy or a drink related version of Luke O'Neill's hell world, uh, where you're kind of taking, taking a look at things in the underside of, of, of various things related to, to just general beverages. And it's, it's been a great read so far. It's, it has a lot of, colorful stories and colorful characters definitely you know recommend folks get out there and uh and subscribe so let this is the point in the show where we let them know how they can do that yes the beer edge plug i'm gonna strap in and uh and i'm sure there's gonna be i i know you guys have some pretty big industry listeners so i'm i'm nervous that like once they see my particular brand of bullshit they're gonna be like andy (laughs) why did you invite this person on uh but 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 come and judge me uh it's fingers.substack.com i'm on substack which is the popular newsletter platform uh again fingers like the things that are on your hands uh dot substack.com and it's free and, and anyone can subscribe. So I hope to, I hope to see you there, but, uh, well, you're already there. Andy. Yep. I'm now, now I'm talking to your faceless viewership that I don't know <laughs> but, or listeners that I don't know, but, but yeah, we'd love to have you. It's, it's been fun so far. I have a bullshit story. Um, I have a bunch of bullshit stories in the hopper. I'm actually looking at them right now. So if, uh, if you want like, you know, sort of like elevated shit posting, um, about, about the beer space and about drinking and about being online, like, uh, I'm your guy, man. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, he- I'm totally here for that. That's going to be, that is great. And Dave, we want to thank you for coming on. It's been, it's been kind of a wild ride through, you know, the crazy days of digital media up through, you know, back to, I guess, back to trying to, trying to do things in the, the old school sense and newspapers and, and just taking a different look at the beer industry. And I've always enjoyed your writing and, and look forward to, to seeing a lot more of it on this, on this industry. We need more beer journalism out there. I really appreciate it, Andy. Yeah, I know. We started in digital media and we ended in print and I got laid off. <laughs> it's a good uh it's a good 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 career arc so far. Um well look man, thanks again for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. 
Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.